Mr. B. Hold it. Do it right. He made a caca on the bed. Don't breathe on me, Adrian. I'm terribly sorry, but there seems to be some sort of misunderstanding. I hope they don't hang you, precious, for that sweet neck. I'm your host, Anthony King. This show is all about a shared love for author, critic, and historian Danny Perry and his cult movies books. If you're new here, what's going to happen is we're going to discuss a movie from the first book, and then we're going to offer up pairing recommendations. And joining me for episode number 25 is writer, commentator, and host of the Supporting Characters podcast, Bill Ackerman. You're back. How are you, Bill? I'm good. Thank you for uh, for uh, having me back. I, I've heard quite a few of my past guests on your show since the last time we spoke. <laughs> it's uh, well, you know, like I've said before, this show is because of you. Um, you know, I you were my introduction to Danny uh, and you were my first guest on this show and uh, you allowed me to drop your name several times in order to get the <laughs> guests that I, I got for the first season and, and have developed some pretty cool relationships. So I cannot yeah. thank you enough for that. My wife, uh, she asked me, who are you talking to tonight? I said, oh, I'm talking to Bill. And she goes, uh, the Bill? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, the Bill Ackerman. Here we go. Well, that's good for my ego, but yeah, I, I think I think you saw my post about this a few weeks back. But I was saying like how it's, it's such a great showcase for everybody that you've featured uh, that's been on supporting characters as far as um, their own unique kind of voices, whether it be Sam Deegan or Heather Drain or uh, Jonathan Hertzberg, Jeremy Ritchie. Now, like every, I mean, it's a good, it's a good. Like, because they're all such unique kind of characters in their own right, and For so you, sure. you give them all great, um, you give them all space to really kind of, you know, flex their chops. Like someone like Chris O'Neill, you know, you give them all like space to really show what they know, and it's really, I mean, as like I approached all of them as fans, right? You know, and it's fun for me as a fan to uh, to hear them, you know, have a good uh, showcase for their knowledge. Well, I I remember when. Uh we first released the very first episode of this and Kayla Janice commented uh, on, I think one of your posts and she was like, mm-hmm. you know, finally somebody is, you know, <laughs> showcasing you bill. And I mean, that's, that's, that's how I'm approaching this. And I, I told Emma Westwood the same thing and yeah. she, I, I feel like I kind of embarrassed her a little bit. So I felt sorry for that, but uh, <laughs> that I'm, I'm approaching this as a huge fan because like the people that I'm talking to yourself included are like people that I've looked up to for so long. And so uh, it's such a great honor just to be able to, uh, you know, call, you know, some of you people friends and and just be able to hang out for a couple hours. This is, you know, it's such an honor for me and and to be able to uh, just sit and listen. And like you said, I try to give um, give the guest 
space and just let them talk because it's it's total it's a total education for me so uh yeah. i mean it's i mean this is totally just you know it, it's me fanboying out with you know <laughs> every week with a guest so it's pretty cool i'm yeah i'm very appreciative yeah. of it well absolutely yeah and, and emma's uh, emma's was great as well i i was hoping uh she would join us for targets but uh i know that she just did one of her thousand commentaries so i'm sure she's all talked out for the week so yeah i uh, i'm trying to figure out when uh she and lee can each get an episode in for this season uh-huh. um but my goodness are those busy people over in melbourne aren't they yes no <laughs> yeah but you'll i mean you know get lee on here and you'll i mean he's amazing yeah and as a as a guest you have a good show with him no matter what topic right yeah, so I'm I'm uh, I'm really excited about what we're going to talk about tonight. Um, mm. But first, before we get into our movie, Bill, uh, tell me a little bit about your introduction to Danny Perry and and his books. Yeah, um, well, Danny Perry, I uh, feel like I might have told the story on my Danny Perry episode of supporting characters. But yeah, essentially, I I I want to say it was like after a soccer game or like soccer practice because I remember I was wearing cleats. Um, and, uh, I was in a kind of like a, some kind of department store that did not have like a book section, but had a couple of used books. Um, it was like a Saturday afternoon. I think I was 12 or 11 and they had cult movies, uh, and cult movies too. And, um, so I bought those cause I recognized some of the films, um, that were covered in it. I, my father, um, is a big old movie uh, fan, and so uh, I seen It's a Gift and King Kong, and um, yeah, like a handful of others that were covered in that book. I think I might even have seen Eraserhead by that point. Um, I'm not sure if I'd. I don't think I'd seen Pink Flamingos yet. I think that was actually what prompted me to see Pink Flamingos. <laughs> but yeah, I, I knew some of the films, um, but that was really the uh, the eye-opening those two books and then cult movies three i acquired later as well as kind of the film fanatic and alternate oscars and um the rest of them um i, I got later but the um yeah those those were like the, i i don't even know like they they were the most significant film book for me uh you know as far as like changing my life changing my taste expanding the palette of uh of interests i think um the number of films that it, it drew, you know, drew me to that were like impactful. I mean, Blue Velvet, you know, being like a major <laughs> one. Cause I think Blue Velvet's in Cult Movies 3. Yeah. But I think because I had um, those Roger Ebert guides and Roger Ebert famously gave it a one star. So I just, I didn't realize how much of an outlier he was at the time because I didn't know about Pauline Kael's review or any of the others. I just knew that this, you know, uh, was supposedly a bad film. So I actually was kind of slow to catch up with it. And Danny Perry was actually uh, the writer that turned me on to that, Chilly Scenes of Winter. I mean, I, the list is very long. Um, but yeah, no, he's he's somebody that, like, I've been reading since, yeah, since, like, maybe eighth grade or freshman year of high school, somewhere around there. Mm-hmm. And, then, um, and then, you know, I would come to uh, approach him for... Uh, my podcast a um, few years back, and uh, I've actually kept in touch with him to up until the present day. We've we've uh, gone to the movies a few times, and um, you know, I I interviewed him for my Jeremy booklet essay for Fun City Editions, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, it's I think he's kind of amused by his resurgent notoriety. I mean, more thanks probably to the Pure Cinema guys than sure. my own. <laughs> 
efforts, but uh, I helped. <laughs> um, and uh, Brian interviewed me for his uh, Long in the Works documentary on, mm-hmm. on Danny Perry. And that's actually how I met um, Chris Pajali and Jonathan Hertzberg, who oh, both wound okay. up being on my show. Uh, I met them that day, and um, I, I've probably, I, I don't know that there's a, a writer that had a bigger influence on me in terms of like, you know, my developing interest in film, like he's, he's the one. And yeah, it's been that way for a few people I've, I've known over the years. Um, you know, Travis Crawford, who I did my first commentary with, I mean, he was the same, you know, the cult movies books were like huge for him. They're huge for Chris Pajali. They're huge for Heather Drain. I mean, you know, so it's, it's definitely, I mean, I even thought about doing a show like this myself at one point, but I just, you know, I just, I never, I never put it together the way you did. But uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's fantastic that more and more people are uh, becoming aware of his books. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't know if he has any interest in ever doing more film writing. I think he's more content with the, with the sports books. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, I, I know that he gets asked, you know, about where's cult movies for like every day. So. Right. <laughs> But yeah, that's that's in a nutshell, I guess, my rambling <laughs> no, history I, with Danny Perry. I, I, I love hearing, you know, uh, for these returning guests, hearing uh, how they came to know Danny and his books. And, uh, you know, for the most part, it's that formative age of, you know, kind of preteen, young teen, that tween age. And, uh, you know, it's couldn't be more different than mine, you know, where I came into, <laughs> I discovered Danny because of you, like I said, I don't know, like five years ago or something. Yeah. And, uh, whenever your podcast started as much as a fan of movies, uh, as I was when I was a kid, mm-hmm. yeah, I was more of just a general fan. You know, we would do the double features on Friday nights, rent the movies at, you know, go to grandma's house and, and watch, uh, two movies uh, but you know, it never went beyond that. I, you know, loved sitting and watching movies, but never was never kind of transfixed like so many of you were. And I love, I just love hearing these stories about, uh, how you were all impacted as children. I think it's so cool. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah, that's a thing. Like, it's interesting to me that, that his books would have such an impact on you as an adult, because I think when people tell me they're going to be picking up cult movies or cult movies too i think people that uh, i know that tell me that usually are so much further along in terms of like how sophisticated their tastes are than i was you know at that age like i mean i had no idea who Werner herzog was or john waters or like i mean you know uh any of these kind of maverick filmmakers that he was writing about it was all new um but you would have been coming at it you know with you know fully formed movie tastes i mean there's there's there was other books besides that i mean danny perry doesn't cover like euro cult and he's actually kind of tough on people like mario bava outside of black sunday you know a a film like last house and left i mean he's he's famously vicious about (laughs) which is a really important film to me i always make i always bring it up with him (laughs) but uh yeah no i i mean i didn't always agree with every opinion in the books but you know it it just even putting them on my radar, yep. you know, was such a big part of it. And um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, it was, bef- you know, I mean, I, I, I sound like an old man when I say it was before the internet, but yeah, it was before the internet. So it was like a different way to learn about this stuff. It's like you had books and magazines and word of mouth and that was it. I mean, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, well, yeah. I mean, it, Ebert, Roger Ebert was syndicated in our paper uh, and, and we live about eight hours away from Chicago 
And so he his reviews were always syndicated in our newspaper. And so I, I always read his reviews for like the new releases and stuff. Um, and so I came to, I don't know, appreciate his writing, I suppose. Um, but I mean, I, it, honest, honest to God, like by the time I got cult movies one, I was essentially just a, a newcomer to film. And so, you know, even though I was, you know, 30, 31, 32, however old I was in my thirties, I got the book. It was like, I was you when you were 12 and reading that because I was still very new. I mean, by the time I got cult movies one, I'd only maybe even heard of, uh, half of the movies in the book. Uh, Mm. so, you know, I, I've been on a, a hardcore crash course here the past five, six years, uh, just basically trying to play catch up. Uh, and, and that, you know, another reason why I started this podcast is to be able to sit down and speak to people like yourself. And like I said before, it's a total education. So I'm kind of like, I'm a sponge trying to learn everything I can and, and learn how to appreciate film better and learn how to watch movies better and, and differently. And I get how you all felt when you first read Danny, when you were, you know, tweens, uh, because I'm, you know, just past that point now in my my movie life. So uh, it's really exciting to me. Yeah, one thing I would say is that, like, it, it was also, a, a, you know, it, it's probably no small thing that, like, it's 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 dealing with adult films, too, you know, yeah. and that, not just porn films, but, like, adult subject right. matter, like, yep. adult, like, R-rated films at a time when I was still too young to you know rent or see a lot of that stuff and so that was also probably a big part of it's like like slightly taboo quality you know when i'm that age um which is also something that i mean don't i don't really experience with it now but like yeah i mean i think um the the way i might have put it in the intro to the danny perry episode i did was just like it had a way of making you know the trashier films classy by their black and white stills (laughs) but it also um yeah it it had a way of then like you know making the classic hollywood films feel sexier just by their kind of close proximity to films like behind the green door you know so it just i don't know it 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 made it all feel um interconnected in a way that um maybe maybe they wouldn't you know you wouldn't think that they would there would be any kind of connection between like Top Hat and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> All right, well, let's move into the movie we're going to discuss this week. Bill, why don't you go and introduce that? Okay, well, I chose uh, Targets, the 1968 uh, feature film from uh, Peter Bogdanovich. Thank you for the food we're about to receive on the Lord's name. Amen. A typical American family at dinner. Mom and dad, their beautiful daughter-in-law, and their only son, Joe. A homicidal maniac. Harry! What are you doing? How's your dad? It's okay. There you go. Thanks a lot. What's your hunt this time? I'm gonna shoot some pigs. Targets, a movie about a war inside a man's head. <laughs> Bogdanovich, 
the director of the last picture show takes you for a roller coaster ride through the canyons of a disturbed mind in targets. I guess this is technically his first feature, although he he he'd done some patch up work on uh, some other Roger Corman titles before that. But this is you know thought of as his first proper uh, commercial feature. Um, I think I saw it sometime sometime in the late nineties on VHS. I got it from the Morris County Library. Um, it was definitely a film that I sought out because of. Uh, cult movies. Um, I I don't think I really thought of Peter Bogdanovich uh, as you know. I I wasn't seeking out all of his films at that age. I mean, I'd seen The Last Picture Show, but I wasn't. I didn't really become a fan of of uh, Bogdanovich like in a tourist kind of way until probably a little later. Yeah, I think I had a sixth grade. Was it sixth? I think seventh grade English teacher, Denny Maddox, uh, who I am still friends with to this day. He was obsessed with Barbara Streisand, and so mm-hmm. <laughs> he would make us watch What's Up, Doc? <laughs> like, you know, like two or three times a semester. And so that was my first Bogdanovich. Of course, I mean, at that point, I all I knew was Babs. <laughs> uh, and so, and I loved and still do that movie. It's so freaking funny. I think it's brilliant. Uh, but yeah, that was kind of my intro. And I, I think it was, I saw mask when I was a kid. Um, but it wasn't until I kind of started that crash course in cinema that I watched the last picture show for the first time. And that's when I was like, Oh, okay. This is, this is absolutely genius. And so kind of, you know, read up a little bit more on Bogdanovich and, um, and then, of course, that great uh, TCM podcast last year with Ben Mankiewicz. I can't even remember what it's called, but he it was basically uh, he sat down with Peter Bogdanovich and just went through his whole career. And uh, it's so, so good. Absolutely fascinating. What a what a brilliant and fascinating man. And then so I saw Targets again. I hadn't really heard of Targets or never saw it until maybe two weeks ago. Uh, this was one of the few from Cult Movies 1 that I had yet to see. Completely blown away by it, you know, seeing that this is 1968 and Bogdanovich is out there. I mean, just like ramming a message down Hollywood's throat, I think is great. So, and that's, let me let me real quick read something from Danny. His essay is really interesting because he doesn't, Danny doesn't talk about why he considers Targets to be a cult movie in this essay. And so th- this is uh, this is a little bit I pulled out. He says, Targets is a remarkable debut film. Many consider it Bogdanovich's best picture, not only because of the sophistic- sophisticated camera work and overall technical expertise, but because it is a Hollywood picture daring enough to have both an anti-Hollywood bias and a strong social, social message as well. 
This picture is such a strong indictment of the proliferation of guns in America's private sector that it is obvious that Bogdanovich is calling for more than gun control. He would like a constitutional amendment to repeal our right to bear arms. And that's, uh, you know, what Danny really focuses in on this essay. It's, uh, you know, what's great about his essays, all of them are completely different. It's not like you're reading the same thing over and over, but by far this is his most different that I've read um, in Cult Movies 1, and I really like it because he does really focus on just sort of the messaging of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think he's probably thinking of this one along the lines of a sleeper as opposed to a cult movie in the sense of like a, um, like a Rocky horror picture show or something like that. Like, I don't know that it was ever like a big midnight movie or I, 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 but Bogdanovich became such a a huge star director in the early seventies that I think it was probably, um, discovered probably the same way that um i don't know maybe some of the de palma films were kind of hmm. reevaluated in the wake of his his bigger success yeah. like carrie or um maybe something like um boxcar bertha you know might be or who's that knocking at my door would probably get renewed attention in the wake sure, of mean yeah, streets yeah. um along those lines um and, and, and incidentally the the title i was trying to think of um was voyage to the planet of prehistoric women you know which has <laughs> i think maybe I think like something like 10 minutes of Bogdanovich footage edited into a Soviet science fiction movie. <laughs> so I don't know if anyone considers that Bogdanovich's debut feature. Um, but uh, for most intents and purposes, I think Targets gets that credit. <laughs> I think he also had a pretty big role in Wild Angels, too, but uh, not, not, not not proper director. It is funny that Danny does focus on the on the gun control thing. I don't even know. I don't even know that like. Peter Bogdanovich was really you read about it being this political film or this uh, message film and I you can read it that way I don't know for a fact that he was trying to make something especially didactic it's it's very out of character for Peter Bogdanovich to have any social commentary in his films and this is the one that he had probably less control over than almost anything else so it's I I mean, I think that comes, I mean, certainly Roger Corman films always have that kind of political edge mixed in with their kind of uh, pulpier exploitation elements. And so, I mean, it wouldn't be, you can, I mean, you can find that, that reading to it. And obviously, yeah, I I don't think it's out of line with Danny, you know, and others have, have seen in it. And, and, And Bogdanovich is kind of outspoken about violence in movies and, and gun control also, you know, um, yeah, I, mean, I remember when the Dark Knight with the Dark Knight Rises, like that Aurora shooting, like he was kind of getting in the press again, like complaining about violence in Hollywood. But I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's always weird when you make thrillers that are anti-violence <laughs> or anti, right? You know, uh, that have some kind of message. But I don't know. I mean, do you do you see this film as uh, as a gun control picture? Um, I you know what's interesting um now okay so i watched it one time for the for the first time a couple weeks ago mm-hmm. i really liked it i didn't love it but i really liked it i thought it was a strong first feature but i thought it was it was strange because it it was like i was watching two different movies kind of thrown together yeah so i watched so when i watched it again last night or a couple nights ago i loved it absolutely loved it i still see it as Two separate things. The kind of gun control messaging did hit me harder 
the second time I watched it. I see it as two movies. You have this gun control, political kind of socio political uh, messaging uh, with the with the shooting part of the movie, and then you have this absolutely heart wrenching love for Hollywood and kind of the the birth of this new Hollywood, of course, which Peter Bogdanovich would. Uh, you know, basically spearhead. And so you have this absolute love of Hollywood and cinema, and then you have this this weird gun control messaging, and somehow it works. I don't know how it works, because still, I, I'm just talking about even more. I feel like I'm still just talking about two separate movies, but it works so well. I think the Byron Orlock storyline i mean feels like a warm-up for the kind of snappy patter old hollywood kind of thing that he does and things like you know what's up doc and nickelodeon and you know that that era of um even daisy miller like you know those things that feel like his love of screwball comedy you know you already have that kind of uh in in those scenes and then the storyline with the sniper nothing else he makes after targets even remotely (laughs) Uh, ref- connects to it, no. I and mean, even other things in even other thriller type things like you know, there's elements of that in like Saint Jack or uh, They All Laughed or uh, there was a um, TV show Fallen Angels. He did an episode of that it was kind of in a film noir mode. Like he's done things that are genre ish, but nothing nothing that really is a suspense thriller thing. I mean, he gets kind of away from plot altogether as he gets more comfortable yeah. with just being about characters and their relationships and um so it is kind of an outlier in his filmography in a way it's like um you know i think of it the way i think of like um badlands or blue collar or even ivan's childhood with tarkovsky like these like kind of relatively tight little debut features that people a lot of people or or even fingers with james toback like some people think that like these are directors that peak with their first film because it's just like everything else feels like either overreach or more indulgent like and this is like a perfect little satisfying movie um i know a few people that think that targets is bogdanovich's best movie i don't share that opinion but i i I get it if you don't respond to the other ones or or you think that this is just your kind of suspense picture because it is you know a, a solid little thriller um yeah yeah no i i think um it's it, it is weird because even more than um john carpenter or martin scorsese or other directors of that of that generation that um you know worshipped at the altar of howard hawks <laughs> like i think bogdanovich seems the least comfortable moving forward with this new hollywood thing i think he just wants that studio system to keep going with him in it <laughs> you know yeah. i don't think he was looking to explore the freedoms that easy rider you know and robert altman and all that like i I don't think he was interested in any of that um and even the the sexuality of last picture show that feels like still kind of a compromise like burt schneider's you know kind of pushing that you know for the bbs thing but like (laughs) once he has real power i mean that even that is kind of absent from most of his oh uh, subsequent filmography well, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, we're we're watching, I'm in seventh grade. How old are we? 11, 12 years old. We're watching What's Up, Doc? You yeah. know, I mean, like that. that is, and then when I, I watched it again for the first time in, you know, 25 years, I was like, oh, as brilliant and funny as it is, it is such an innocent little movie. Now, my favorite part of Targets is the 
the sniper part portion with uh, uh, with Bobby. Mm-hmm. And but I am and I don't know why, but I'm so drawn to bleak storytelling, bleak cinema. Um, and so I he does. It, it's funny. The second picture Bogdanovich makes the one that kind of catapults him into this career that he can, you know, it's a, it's his blank check movie. Basically he leans into, I I feel like the last picture show is another bleak. It's, it's not as bleak as the sniper portion of targets, but it's another bleak movie, which is why I love uh, the last picture. So uh, the last picture show so much because it is kind of dark and depressing. And of course the black and white photography helps in that, uh, and then the setting, I mean, so much. But it's funny that that kind of darkness is what allowed him to to kind of go and do whatever he wanted. Yeah. And I mean, the last picture show, it's his own, you know, it's his own conversation. But I would say that, I mean, that taps into nostalgia at a time like at the very beginning of um you know the nostalgia boom for like 1950s pop culture in that yeah. as an escape from you know vietnam and student protests and like the the, the troubles of the early 70s i mean uh, the last picture show might be kind of melancholy but it still functions as you know a simpler time <laughs> you know yes. kind of thing i mean it's not american graffiti or summer 42 but it's 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 kind of you know, sounding the the charge for that kind of look backwards. And it's also pushing ahead sexually at a time when it's like still kind of new in Hollywood movies to have to have like sexuality handled that way. I mean, it's like only a couple of years after The Graduate, you know, only a couple of years into the production code falling and this implementation of the R rating. So I think the sexiness of it and the bittersweet nostalgia of it you know, are part of why it was like this kind of major hit. I mean, it wasn't as yeah. big a hit as What's Up Doc, but it was definitely a big hit. In a way, it's an outlier also. I mean, there's th- that kind of John Ford, like, melancholy thing. I mean, he doesn't really do that that often after that. I mean, he's somebody that was always looking to make light entertainments, and most of his filmography are these kind of gentle, bittersweet comedies or or these rollicking comedies. It's not like, right. you know, Targets and Last Picture Show you know, really define what his greater interests were. I mean, they were yeah. both kind of making different concessions to the producers and, you know, yeah. the material. Yeah, no, at Targets, you know, I, I think I think it's aged really well. I mean, I, I know that uh, maybe some of the performances aren't perfect in it, and it's, you know, uh, <laughs> but Bogdanovich himself, it's it's kind of a weird foreshadowing because he plays this cocky young director, and he definitely became, you know, infamous in the talk show circuit you know for being the the cocky director (laughs) well what i love about his performance this is the the half of the the movie that is you know kind of a love for hollywood a love for classic cinema that he is basically playing jimmy stewart you know uh he's playing a loose character that jimmy stewart would play and especially the morning after he passes out in byron's hotel and they go to sleep together in the same bed and he comes out and he sees uh, uh the assistant there and i mean he's <laughs> i'm wondering if if i i could see if somebody turned to him and said, you want to try that again? Because you sound just like Jimmy Stewart would read that line. Like he sounds just like Jimmy Stewart in that moment. 
Um, and, you know, I mean, he Bogdanovich came up as a critic and got to interview all these people and, you know, several times got to sit down with Jimmy Stewart. And uh, I, I don't know, I just and of course, he's he's famous for his impressions. And so I, I just think it's funny. And I, I love when Bogdanovich shows up in any movie because he's he's not the greatest actor in the world, but I just, I don't know. I just love seeing him on screen. Yeah. He definitely has a presence. I mean, I think that, um, you know, one thing that kind of connects it to last picture show is that these are both films that have respect for their elders at a time when, you know, the generation gap, you know, themes were like really prevalent in youth driven kind of films. And this, these, these films feel at least in that respect, more conservative than films that would be, aimed at the 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 Dennis Hopper you know kind of audience true I think he he shows such a love for Boris Karloff playing Byron Orlock and the way uh he wrote the screenplay and of course he came up the the story with his wife at the time Polly uh uh, what's her Polly Platt Platt. Polly Platt right but I, I don't know just the dialogue he writes you're exactly right, shows so much love and affection for like these classic Hollywood stars. Karloff has some of these lines like uh, at the beginning, he said, the world belongs to the young, make way for them, let them have it. But he says it, he reads it uh, like an old kind of crotchety man. He's reluctant to let them have it. And I feel like Bogdanovich, you know, he saw kind of what was coming. He saw a change in the way things were done and like you said he wasn't ready for it he wanted to hold on to this stuff but then orlock has other lines he says i have no more obligations it's quite relaxing and and so it's you could see this kind of struggle that bogdanovich a young man at this time is young in age but old in heart i feel like uh he's kind of having this struggle like i love the movies that I grew up on. I love these older stars, but I know cinema has to move on and grow and expand and, you know, go to strange new places. Uh, so I, I think it's really interesting just how affectionate he, he treats, how affectionately he treats Boris Karloff and his character in this movie. Yeah, no, I, I think um, one other thing I, I, I notice with, with this particular film is the um, the use of pop music on the radio is all yeah. so noisy and dissonant that yes. it, it kind of, it feels like it's made by someone that hates rock and roll and hates pop <laughs> culture. It feels like another like old man, you know, you know old beyond his years kind of touch. Um, but at, at the same time, I mean, Bogdanovich was you know, a, a, a coastal liberal. And so for him to be making these like suburban, you know, middle-class family stories, like that was not like, I mean, he's a New York kid. Like he was not like, it's, it's all kind of foreign territory. Same as the small Texas towns of last picture show. I mean, these are all kind of like in an outsider's perspective of these worlds. And, you know, uh, I mean, I, I wouldn't say that he's doing like, like Ozzy and Harriet, you know, in those scenes with Bobby's family, but it oh is kind of, I mean, kind of, kind of, it is kind of tweaking the sitcomish kind of yeah. uh, aspects of it um, without being like too broad. It's not, but it, it but it is um, again. That's like a milieu that he never revisits in any of the other films that I can think of. I'm trying to think. Um, no, it's true. Well, he's got this absolutely breathtaking shot of the family sitting down to dinner. 
uh, dad on one side, mom on the other side, and then Bobby and his wife sitting on one side in the middle together against this, like, you know, the light blue uh, wall and then just a little simple painting. And, you know, it's perfectly framed. And it's like the, you know, it's Bogdanovich. Like you said, he's a New York City kid. Uh, Bogdanovich's uh, idea of the normal, perfect, suburban, happy American family sitting down to dinner. They're praying. uh, And then afterwards, they retire to the living room together. And they're sitting in the dark watching the Joey Bishop show. And they're laughing and having a good time. So watching that the first time feels, for me, it felt weird. But watching it the second time uh, feels horrific and extremely dark because you know that Bobby is all sorts of crazy and this facade or maybe not even facade, maybe he is completely psychotic and just has, you know, these multiple personalities and can snap on an instance, which is, is, I appreciate that we never explore that, but it's, it's terrifying once you know what's coming. You know, one thing that that uh, you have in that storyline is where the camera pans over and shows the, um, the framed photo of him in soldier's fatigues. And oh, yeah. I guess it's like Bogdanovich would later say that it's like, you know, telling us that he's like a Vietnam vet. And so right. some like reviews like kind of position this as the... You know, an early example of the the damaged Vietnam vet goes crazy kind of thing that like, you know, Taxi Driver and Paul Schrader movies like, you know, Rolling Thunder and like, yeah, anticipates that kind of trope. It's so subtle that I don't even know that if that's a buried message. I mean, it's it's definitely too too subtle. I know Schrader himself gave um, Bogdanovich credit for exploring that idea mm. and certainly some of the dialogue like. I mean, he has some line like "I got some bad ideas" or something like that. Like it, it, something that almost anticipates what uh, Travis Bickle yeah. says to the Peter Boyle character in Taxi Driver, like that same kind of, you know, something something's brewing inside me. And uh, I don't know. I mean, because that's something that like I see a lot of contemporary reviews mention the Vietnam thing, and it's like it's definitely unspoken. And I don't even know in 1968 how many people would have picked up on that. It's really just. <laughs> that one shot of him in the, in the in the photo right yeah well you know on i am i think it's imdb or maybe it's letterboxed like in the the little synopsis it says you know a vietnam vet you know goes on a murder spree basically yeah. and and i mean i i still <laughs> i after you even after you said it pans over to him in a photo with army fatigues I, I still didn't catch that. So, I mean, it's really subtle. Yeah. And yeah, it's, I don't think, you know, if Bogdanovich was trying to say something, uh, maybe it got cut out somewhere in post. I don't know. I don't know. Well, because I mean, that's the thing. I mean, you compare it to the case of um, Charles Whitman, which is an inspiration, but they don't, they don't like um, go too factual. Like there's substantial difference between the, the the Charles Whitman story and Targets. You know, the, I mean, there's there's elements that overlap, but there's also quite a bit that's different about about those two about what Targets does versus that that true crime kind of story. But right. um, you know, assigning the motive for the killer, or you know, it's 
it is kind of ambiguous and i think you know bringing vietnam too close to the surface would only kind of that oh it's it's a p you know it's like some kind of extension of his ptsd or something like that i don't even know you know with whitman you know he clearly was like mentally ill i don't know the exact if there's an exact reason like i mean he you know disciplined you know by his father and there's a discipline issue in targets as well you know a lot of people are disciplined without you know taking it out you know uh, you know on strangers with a gun so i don't know um that they try to make it too neat but no i see i that's what i like and and that's what makes this movie so bleak and slash enjoyable to me is that it's so embarrassing uh not embarrassing it's so ambiguous yeah uh that we don't know why he's doing this and even his note you know, he says he's he's going to go on this killing spree. Uh, you know, I killed my my mom and my wife and more people will die before I get caught. He doesn't say before I kill myself. He says before I get caught. He knows he's going to survive this. And I mean, again, that just adds another layer of of ick uh, and, you know, a, a, another creepy factor to this movie uh, and to this character of Bobby we don't know why he he does this. You know, he's he's such a 1950s like, you know, it's like he came off the set of My Three Sons. He's yeah. one of the sons, you know, just munching on his his candy bars, his baby Ruth's and oh, just charge it to my dad's account. And it's just so creepy. Again, after you know what's what's coming uh, for me that it just scared the shit out, out of me yeah and this is the um the year before easy rider and so it's another vision of like that that straight square world and like the threat that the counterculture might feel about them you know uh you know it is definitely like a um like I, 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 they don't go into the politics of the bobby character but he's you know he's like a you know, clean cut young Republican type, you know, maybe on at least visually, you know, um, compared to, like I said, like the, you know, the Dennis Hopper type things that are around the corner or even really happening in California. I mean, you know, it's it's, again, it's just kind of separates it from, you know, the other people that Roger Corman was working with at that time. Like this is the same period that he's doing things like the trip and psych out and, you know, the other things that Laszlo Kovacs was shooting too, for that, that group of filmmakers. Um, right. You know, it's a, it's totally different, and um, so it it would have been interesting had that gone out through AIP if that would have made a difference versus Paramount, because I think that, I mean, having a film come out through Paramount, even though it didn't really connect commercially, it definitely uh, opened all the doors that he needed to have opened for the Last Picture Show and so on to happen. And same for Laszlo Kovacs, the the DP, like yeah. that got him in the union, and you know went from doing like biker pictures to doing you know, things for uh, Bob Rafelson and Scorsese and uh, Altman. And, you know, it it just, you know, it opened it opened the doors in a way that like, um, you know, if, the, if it had gone out just as a, a Roger Corman AIP film, I don't know if it would have had the same impact, but it might have been. It's hard to know because like pa- pa- Paramount kind of didn't open it super wide and I don't know how AIP would have handled it. They, I probably would have released it earlier. Um, cause I think it was done in 67. It didn't come out until okay. I think summer, late summer of, uh, of 68. So it still feels like somewhat like a modern direction for horror. Like it's not really thought of as a horror movie, but I feel like it kind of points the way towards where horror could go as far as like the breaking away from the Gothic 
and the period settings and you know the things that you see in the terror you know like the yeah. way that horror was going to change 1968 is what like night night of living dead you know like i mean the, yeah. this is um really where you know it's setting the stage for things like the last house on the left and the, you know these these films that like uh are horror but are um not dealing in fantasy characters right exactly yeah well you know and, and that kind of comes brings the question back you know did bogdanovich was he you know did he set out to make this kind of you know social message of a movie despite what he says you know who knows maybe because listen whatever when when we all sit down to write something fiction that is it's inevitable that whatever is happening in the world around us or or at least in our immediate world is going to influence that piece of fiction somehow and so you know whether he intended to set out to write this like social political messaging thing uh he probably didn't but it's going to get in there anyways because that's that's just the way the world was at the time yeah i mean the the scene where he is able to so easily acquire all the guns i mean is is a politically <laughs> oh, loaded scene and and certainly <laughs> the fact that like all these people at the drive-in have guns like i mean there's like you know there's there there's a acknowledgement of gun culture and gun fetishism and that is, you know, a political thing. But and the fact that Byron Orlock defeats him without a gun, you know, <laughs> you know, somewhat kind of outrageously. But, but like, um, yeah, I, I mean, th- that is there. But, um, you know, I, I, I don't know that certainly like in 1967, when they made the film, the whole notion of mass shootings, it's not like now where that's a real yeah. perpetual right. thing. Like it was a very fluke kind of situation yeah. for that kind of thing to happen so i it's not like it would have been addressing that i mean you had certainly a climate of you know high profile assassinations in the 60s you know and it's it, it isn't addressed the way that like say taxi driver addresses that kind of idea which oh, is totally you know it's really just exploiting the uh the whitman killing thing and like you know as a way to underline what real horror looks like versus the kind of schlock that Karloff was being forced to do at that stage of his career yeah Okay, so I, I have a, a couple, just a couple questions here, Ryan, mm. uh, real quick. There's no Blu-ray. Is there, there is. even a deep? There is a Blu-ray of Targets. Yeah, it's not out yet. It's a UK release. Okay, uh, the BFI, the BFI one, right? Yeah. Okay, but but no Region A. Would that be something to do with either the music or like the you know they're playing the Terror and the Criminal Code and stuff? No, it's just because um, Paramount. It has never been in a hurry to deal with their. I mean, they, I don't think they've ever put out um, Paper Moon on Blu-ray here either. I mean, or I mean, let alone Daisy Miller. And I remember when the DVDs came out, they came out all as a trio. But mm. Peter Bogdanovich is not like super well represented on Region A Blu-ray. Yeah, <laughs> and um, yeah, Paramount it just does not have the same uh, sense of urgency with catalog titles. I don't think it has anything to do with music rights. I think it oh, has, okay. um, or even clearing like the criminal code or whatever. Like, no, I don't think it's that. I think it's just, oh, okay. no, I just think that they don't think it's going to make any money. <laughs> oh, man. See, I, I think that's asinine. I mean, I couldn't believe when when I went to go, you know, buy the Blu-ray of this. There, At the time when I went to go buy the Blu-ray of this, there wasn't even the, the BFI one. Yeah. And I was like, what? I don't know. I just yeah. Whatever. I don't want to like, media thing, you know. I mean, I don't want to like 
create like any kind of rumor that's unfounded because I don't have any clue if Criterion like have an interest in these. I assume that they would. So it could be something that Criterion is just sitting on. Sure. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. But who knows? I mean, there's, you know, there's a lot of things that could be uh, with that. But I assume that, yeah, it's whatever the situation that's holding up targets in the U.S. is the same that holds up Daisy Miller and Paper Moon. Um, And Paper Moon is the one that would be most surprisingly absent because that was, you know, a hit, an Oscar winner, you know, has recognizable stars like Madeline Kahn. And I don't think uh, Ryan (laughs) O'Neill... I guess he has some kind of like, you know, Me Too era kind of bad mojo or whatever. But I don't know. I don't oh, okay. think that keeps it from coming out because, I mean, you know, yeah. like something like Love Story is still around. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 That just got the, the Paramount uh, release thing. Okay. Now, my other question is, do you get the sense that fans of this movie are fans of it because of the kind of Byron Orlock portion of the movie or the sniper portion of the movie the sniper portion of the movie oh okay cool i mean i i i would assume that fans of targets like both but i think right. that the sniper element is why it has a a cult following i mean yeah i mean certainly i think if you were to make it like a love letter to karloff you might give him more i don't know like like have him like deal more with his horror movies like his deal more with like you know things like frankenstein or i i don't know i mean i guess you couldn't do that for rights reasons but i mean i mean it, it's it is it is you know uh reverent towards boris karloff but i think it's kind of I, I don't know i think if you made the entire film about that then then it, it would probably tap more into that monster kid kind of kind of oh, audience yeah. the way that like something like ed wood does you know for lugosi but yeah i think i think it's the tension of the sniper thing that is probably the bigger uh source of its appeal if i had sure, to guess okay, okay. I, ju- I just thought it was interesting especially after the second time i watched this i was like this movie is targets i think is bleak as hell and that's that's why i love it so much yeah no i mean it is i think it is a dark movie i mean it has a i don't know it has a happy conclusion but it is <laughs> well it does well yeah that that ending you know uh my note what is it says uh Orlock just slapping him like a little bitch because he is. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, he was killed off in the, I think, initial concept uh, for oh, Targets really? in halfway through. And I think, I don't know if it was, I forget if it was Polly Platt or Sam Fuller that, like, you know, suggested, like, don't kill him off. Like, have him face off against the the sniper. Like, connect these things and make better use of your of your guest star. But, yeah, I mean, they only had him for two days in the original plan i mean they they got him ultimately for five days but originally you know when corman brought the project to bogdanovich i mean they only had corman you know only had karloff for two days and then the rest of it was supposed to be made up of footage from the terror so it wasn't really like enough time to do much with him and so that yeah i think that was the thinking that like they would kill him off halfway through maybe like and you know not to psycho you know or something like oh, that. oh yeah boy that's really interesting um, okay, now real quick, uh, a little bit more about this bleakness that, again, I don't know why, but I just, I love this. But Bogdanovich does these absolutely hypnotic, like lingering camera shots where like after Bobby shoots his wife and his mom and who's the, is that just like a delivery boy? Yeah, yeah, I think okay. so. But these like long takes of Bobby 
you know, just moving the bodies and putting towels over the, the blood. No dialogue. And it's just, it, it's like Bogdanovich is so patient with it and it makes you squirm a little bit. But then you get that again when Bobby climbs the, like the, uh, the oil tower thing, whatever you call that. And he's unloading his armory, basically what he brought with him, this, this bag full of guns, like what I counted five rifles and five handguns. Again, no dialogue. We just hear the hum of the machinery and then these, you know, interstitial shots of the, the interstate there. And the camera is just patiently watching him unload his guns. He has a snack. The traffic is passing by on the interstate. And then, and then he starts lining up his shots. Uh, and then it happens again. Bobby's at the drive-in. He's kind of in the rafters of the, the drive-in screen. And the camera takes forever just climbing up these rafters, this kind of catwalk or whatever, behind the screen. When it finally reaches Bobby... And he's up there. He's got a little hole in the screen. He's kind of, you know, looking for who he can kill. These moments just make you squirm. At least they make me squirm. And I dig that. Like Bogdanovich wasn't afraid to not necessarily even say something just to to make you squirm. I love it. Yeah. I mean, I think that he's, you know, pulling from people like Hitchcock. You know, I mean, it's he'd be he'd be happy making silent films if he. You know, if the if the assignment called for it, I mean, he likes, you know, and and as far as like the pace of it, I mean, yeah, it's just building, building that tension. It's again, like it's the only film of his that really does that, you know, and some of it is also probably just the speed at which they had to work. I mean, I I don't know how much coverage they were getting for these scenes. So they probably do not have a lot of choices, you know, to 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 build a faster rhythm. But, you know, I mean. For all I know, that's how it was always kind of intended. I mean, he's somebody that shot what he needed early on and was not like getting a lot of um, superficial kind of coverage if he didn't, if he knew how to, um, how he was going to build it in the cutting room in advance, right. you know, editing yeah. and editing in camera. But um, yeah, well, yeah, coming from the Corman school, you know, that's, you, you talk about a crash course, you learn uh, how to work efficiently there. So yeah. Okay. Any more about targets you want to say? No, I think I think uh, yeah, yeah, I'm just um, I think we've 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 covered it. I mean, maybe we'll touch on it more, like as we're talking about our picks. Maybe things will come up, but yeah, no, it's a film that uh, I I think I think it was if it was easier to see, the cult would only get bigger. But it, it's it's definitely like a film that I think of of films that are covered in cult movies is better known now than it was when he wrote that book. For sure. Well, I think you know the fact that I kind of had to hunt hunt this down again i talked about that on my episode uh before yours with jessica the kind of art of the hunt uh trying to find these movies uh creates in in and of itself the cult so i i think that's really cool and you know the i think this absolutely deserves the criterion treatment or whatever a huge you know limited edition collector's box set of targets because I think the movie's absolutely brilliant. Uh, but I also do like the fact that it's sort of this gem still that, you know, I can't imagine tons of people have seen. No, I mean, it's, it's never going to be as big as mask or what's up doc, but it is a, um, yeah, no, I mean, it, it it's, 
it's got a solid fan base and i think that in, in, inevitably somebody will put it out on blu-ray or you know whether it's criterion it never would surprise me if they if they have it but you know i i really don't know i mean yeah you know what paramount's plans are for these titles but sure i mean at least we'll be getting the the uk blu-ray so that means yeah. a transfer exists so that that's always a good sign for the region a people for sure and yeah those you know uh those bfi blu-rays are nothing to sneeze at so and if you're all region then why not um okay let's move on to our pairing recommendations mm-hmm. bill let's hear your first one here Okay. Well, I I think there's at least one I thought of that I thought you might be picking. So I I'm not going with it unless. Uh, but I, I I have I I have a lot of different ideas. But the one that I uh, since I mentioned the Vietnam thing, um, the first one I'm going to recommend um, is uh, from 1974. It's from Death Dream. <laughs> by Alan oh. Ormsby and directed by Bob Clark. And so, yes. you know, if Targets could be described as, you know, a depiction of a Vietnam vet who terrorizes uh, an unsuspecting city despite living in this kind of almost sitcom-like, you know, suburban family environment, uh, Death Dream is doing something like that also. It's a kind of um, atmospheric variation on the monkey's paw kind of idea. A soldier mm-hmm. is killed in Vietnam. Uh, his mother can't accept the loss and essentially wills him back and problems ensue. <laughs> it's one of my favorite horror films um, and it also builds to a violent climax at a drive-in movie, possibly as a nod to Targets. I'm not mm. sure, but I feel like as with Targets, it offers kind of a new direction that horror could go. I mean, this one is dealing in, in fantasy, you know, it's dealing with the, you know, the living dead, but it is also, uh, very much a message picture, very political, yeah. uh, for its type. I mean, and it, and it also doesn't mention Vietnam by name like targets, mm. but it is, it's, Certainly in 1974, it'd be unmistakable what, you know, what it was oh, saying. for sure. It's kind of dealing with the notion of soldiers coming back as addicts, but in, you know, a uh, zombie vampire type of story. It's just as downbeat in in its own way as targets, but it, and it has that connection to, you know, in their own way, they both speak to things like Frankenstein. I mean, targets with Karloff and the, the tragic monster of, of uh, Death Dream, I mean, you know, he's definitely like a, uh, a descendant of that. I, I guess if you're thinking along genre lines, that would be my first pick. I love it. I, I remember watching it and there is a scene, I don't know if it's the, f- like when he first comes home, but I know the sitting, scene you're talking about. <laughs> are they, are they sitting outside? 
they're sitting at the table. I know the scene okay. you're talking about where it builds to a very uncomfortable laugh. Yes. Well, it, yeah, it, that was the first time I saw this, I don't know, years ago. But that was the first time that I felt that kind of uncomfortable dread while mm-hmm. watching a movie. Uh, you know, and of course, it, it was it wouldn't be until years later when I watched Hereditary in the theater where I just wanted to scream, uh, you know, where the, the son is sitting in the car after he accidentally beheads his sister. Spoilers. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I remember talk about squirming in my seat. I was like, what is oh, my God, this is so uncomfortable. And I love that. <laughs> yeah, no. I, and and like Target's Death Dream had kind of sub, subpar distribution and so it wasn't really widely seen at the time. And then the director went on to have great success, you know. Um, and so it kind of has had a life in home video and, you know, cult circles, but it still deserves a wider audience than it has. Most definitely. Yeah, that is wonderful. Okay, so I went, well, for two of, I, I was going to go all three completely just pitch black bleak mm-hmm. uh for two of them i did that my third one i watched a really bleak movie but it just didn't really line up anyways but they're all about <laughs> they're all about guns so uh, my first one is actually it could be considered a short film but it played on tv originally in 1989 from alan clark uh elephant mm. from from bbc and it's uh written by bernard mcleverty and it's a it's the short film that aired on BBC Two. It's essentially dialogue free. It's a compilation, basically, of several unexplained shootings in Northern Ireland. Now, two things. One, uh, I love kind of basically silent modern movies. Two. I have written this trilogy of plays called the Donnelly Trilogy about Irish immigrants who kind of ran from the troubles you know the period of in the 60s and the 70s and in northern ireland so i was completely drawn to this movie for that reason that's a really interesting pick yeah i i would not have thought of that one but let me let me say this so i am like as anti-gun as it comes i i think i'm gonna have to say this is the most bleak movie the bleakest movie (laughs) i've ever seen it's less than 40 minutes long and i had to take a break because it has these like long takes that follow each shooter approaching their victim. The shooter shoots the victim and then it holds uncomfortably long on the dead bodies while the shooter just walks away. And it's, there's no, it's not silent because you hear the footsteps, you hear the gunshots, you hear, you know, whatever, but there's no talking and it just talk about realistic. It just seems so real and terrifying and yeah i think it was about 25 minutes in i had to pause it and walk away i just wanted to scream because i was just so (laughs) shook up by this freaking thing um but watched it again the next day of course so (laughs) (laughs) i i know that uh, clark is definitely a master of a certain kind of despairing tension i mean i think of something like scum you know is something very hard to shake off and I wonder if um, Van Sant was referencing Elephant with his own Columbine shooting kind of trauma. I mean, you have to think, one, the, the title, but two, just like kind of how it's so minimal and and like, you know, almost basically dialogue free. But I mean, talk about another bleak movie. That's one that I don't need to watch again. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. Just because just I was I was in 
high school at that time and like it kind of changed the world of course but uh yeah something about alan clark's elephant and i think it's that it's that northern ireland thing that i feel compelled to learn about and write about okay bill let's hear your second one here okay um so my second one is um is another sniper movie uh, and I had a few choices to go, you know, with this. And uh, but I went with um, Two Minute Warning from 1976, directed by Larry Pierce. Listen to me, you're dying. You tell me who sent you up there. Where'd you get that gun? Who were you trying to get? Come on. His name's Cook. Carl Cook. He's a transit from out of state. All right, come talk to me. You talk to me, you miserable son of a bitch. Where did you get that gun? Who were you trying to get? Who are you trying to kill? Don't what did you do? Don't hurt me. <laughs> and uh, written by Edward Hume, uh, who wrote a lot of TV movies, including The Day After, if you've ever seen that one, uh, the, uh, the nuclear holocaust movie, um, which I think has some footage from Two Minute Warning in it. But it's, a, um, it's kind of like a disaster movie meets TV movie kind of feel like it feels like a TV movie in in a good way if you like those kind of um star-studded 70s TV movies that have like tons of uh you know veteran actors this this has that I mean this has a cast with Charlton Heston, John Cassavetes, Jenna Rollins, uh Martin Bal- Martin Balsam, uh Bo Bridges, Walter Pidgeon, David Jansen. It feels like um like you have all these different p- plot strands that takes a really long time establishing all these characters and you don't know, you know, who are the potential victims of this, of this maniac who, you know, has started killing people and is, uh, snuck into this massive football game at the LA Coliseum. So it has this kind of like extended, I mean, it feels like 90 minutes or something, you know, of, of character building with like very little violence, but like a lot of anticipation. And then it becomes like a large scale version of something like targets where I mean, it's something that's like shot in widescreen and with the scale of a big Hollywood disaster movie, but with the, the way of, of establishing characters that re- reminds me so much of television movies of that period. It, it's, it's uh, I think it's really effective I and mean, critics were really tough on it. And I don't quite get, I, I don't really understand why, because I think it's actually like a very effective thriller you know i don't know if back-to-back sniper movies will like you know make you you know extra <laughs> tense you know in your in your evening entertainment but it it's a more popcorny film than targets but it right as a point of comparison because i looked at a few sniper movies this week trying to think of what would i would pick i i looked at um blue caprice that uh movie about the dc sniper okay. and i looked at um there's actually like a tv movie um based on the charles whitman story more directly uh, called The Deadly Tower from 1975 which has a um, young actor named Kurt Russell playing the Charles Whitman character but <laughs> um, you know I went with Two Minute Warning because that's for me the most entertaining but you yeah. know there's there's a few directions you could go and all of them are quite grim <laughs> yeah for, for sure well I almost I thought about uh, doing you know that documentary The Tower yeah which I think uh, my wife and I loved because it was really the first time we kind of learned about that because you of course you're not taught about that incident the Charles Whitman stuff in school and we weren't of course alive at that time so we didn't really know much about it so it was really interesting and I love the way how they do it with the kind of rotoscoping and then that ending 
where everybody meets is oh my god just like brings tears to your eyes i love it it's such a great documentary it's yeah well no like i said well that was the one that i thought you were going to pick because okay because i knew from letterbox that you had given it four stars and it felt like such a natural companion to targets that i thought well i mean that might be one that you pick so i i I didn't put it on my list but yeah that may because that one i mean the difference between targets and something like tower is that tower is has no i mean almost no real attention is paid to to the killer to charles whitman and his story it's just about the victims and the police and the small acts of bravery and heroism that took place over the course of that day. Um, so it's it's about celebrating the people that got through it or, or that didn't get through it. But it right. isn't about um, glamorizing a serial yep. killer. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's that was another reason why we really loved it. And, you know, I'm all about we're, you know, we're big on the true crime stuff on Netflix. You know, every week they put out a new thing, whatever. But we really did love the fact that they focused on, you know, the victims and the survivors instead of this psycho up in the tower shooting people. I thought it was really lovely. And and I think that's what makes the ending of Tower so powerful when when people meet, it just, man, it hits so hard. And it's such a fulfilling conclusion to that movie. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, if you compare it to targets, I mean, targets at the end of the day, whatever, you know, message it has about gun control is a thriller and it's meant to be, you know, a a knuckle biter, you know, whereas tower is not trying to do that and tower is about tugging on your heartstrings you know it it leaves you with a positive feeling about people whereas targets is not even really concerned with any of the victims i mean even (laughs) even the family that he murders are are kind of you don't really get to know them and they seem almost kind of slightly absurd sitcom-y kind of characters i mean you know compared to the byron orlock story you know which is more of a screwball comedy i mean these are just kind of i want to say ciphers but they're not you don't really know them you don't really i mean beyond just the you know the overall like you know just murder is bad you know you you react to it like not like it's a good thing he's killing them but you don't really feel like a sense of loss the way you know you feel like bad for the people that you learn about their murders in tower because the time is taken to you know give you a sense of who these people were you know and humanizes the the uh the victims of this killer rather than you know the glamour of the psycho killer and what was he up to you know like and that's so it, it's its own kind of political film i mean for, for something sure. like that last tarantino film by you know uh by not giving any further adding to the to the mystique of charles manson kind of thing and like just making it about the victim in a way that maybe it's a little similar to that you know like it's yeah just a different choice but um yep. yeah i i agree um okay so well my next choice makes targets look like that that fun happy-go-lucky sitcom uh because this is jeff canoe's natural enemies from 1979 starring hal holbrook i don't think i slept 10 minutes during the night at least i never knew whether i was asleep or awake or lost or dead in a moment just after dawn I stood by my bedroom window and I heard myself say, this is the day when you will take 
the Marlin 22 rifle. Load it and shoot Miriam, Tony, Sheila, Alex, and yourself. You will do it at about 8.15 when Miriam calls you down to dinner. You will shoot her first, then the children. Then it will be over. All men think of killing their families. Some do it. Some with vengeance. Mm. Uh, have you seen this, Bill? I have not seen it. Okay, so Hal Holbrook, th- this is based off of the novel uh, by Julius Horowitz, and it's written and directed by Jeff Canoe, starring Holbrook, and he's married to Louise Fletcher, and they have three children. Uh, one of them is Elizabeth Barrage in her first movie, like uh, the year be- or a couple years before she does Toby Hooper's Funhouse. Hmm. So anyways, uh, Holbrook plays this middle-aged man, and he's this successful magazine editor, but he's unhappy with his life, and he can only really see a dim future for his kids and the, the rest of the world, basically. So he contemplates shooting his family and then killing himself as like the only happy conclusion. And so his wife, uh, Louise Fletcher, she's struggling with mental illness. She's in and out of hospitals. And there, there's a really uh, tough scene where she was basically tricked into doing uh, the doctors tricked her into doing shock treatment. And Holbrook takes one of the doctors and says, you know, just puts him against the wall and tells him you're not to do this ever again. So Holbrook is constantly worrying about his wife because she has these episodes where she'll pass out and they have to call the ambulance and they come and pick her up. And anyway, so the movie opens up with this monologue and he's kind of just talking about how shitty the world is basically. And it's, it's not a linear narrative. So you have this kind of inner monologue going on in Holbrook you have these scenes with the family. You have these scenes of him going into the city, uh, working at his office and opening up to his coworkers and his friends and his colleagues and like basically turning to them for advice while he still basically just shrugs it off and struggles with finding the will to live. Uh, but then you also have these scenes where he goes to this whorehouse and or excuse me, brothel and uh, has an evening of pleasure with five uh, prostitutes and he kind of opens up to them and, and they give him advice and, and cause he's, you know, he's not getting anything, any sort of that type of pleasure from his wife. And anyways, the movie is, uh, I mean, it's dark and dreary from minute one till the credits and, you know, I'm not going to trick anyone into thinking otherwise this movie is sad and it is straight drama. There's nothing. There's no levity. It's extremely heavy. The ending. Oh, I'm not going to tell you the ending. It, you don't, it, tell me it, the ending. <laughs> it, yeah. It, I mean, the whole movie, it's just him contemplating death and why, why are we living? And Holbrook is the master he was the master at this sort of thing you know of course he he was famous for touring as mark twain Mm -hmm. you know just monologues that's his thing he is so freaking good at that and that's what this is 
and I've already used the word once tonight, but hypnotic. It's absolutely hypnotic. Just listening to him talk, trying not to allow yourself to <laughs> be persuaded by the words he's saying. Uh, but it's, I mean, it's so good. Uh, really hard to find. I, I did find kind of this shitty rip on YouTube, uh, unfortunately. But my God, this is such a heavy but brilliant movie. I have to check it out. Yeah, I, I had to do quite a bit of looking into the career of Hal Holbrook. I read his, you know, uh, memoir earlier this year because of the mm. um, commentary that I had um, been working on, you know, at beginning of the year with the um, people next door. But um, oh yeah, but uh, yeah, no, I haven't seen this one, and I, I, it's, it sounds like a lot of laughs. I will, I will, I will have to <laughs> to seek it out. <laughs> I, I know you're, you, you don't shy away from stuff like this, Bill. So no, no, no. Uh, I feel like it's it's right up your alley. <laughs> yeah, no, it sounds like it. I um I, I did have one really bleak film as a as as I I had like maybe five or six films that are not in my top three recommendations here that I considered and you know something like Benny's video that Michael Haneke I considered but yeah I I went another way but yeah I I I think that that. Uh, that sounds like a very grim double feature. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It, it, yeah, you're not going to walk out of the theater feeling very good about yourself. No. Well, my my last <laughs> one, I did go a different direction, and um, uh, I went with uh, Madhouse, 1974, directed by Jim Clark. Why did he take you again? Was it because you were young? Because your eyes shone? And your lips smiled? Because you were life. It wasn't me tonight, Helen. No. For all those years ago, it was stuck to death. This is the uh, the Vincent Price movie, and um, oh. you know, I thought. Um, you know, if we're talking about targets as a, uh, you know, functioning as a tribute to Boris Karloff, you know, one that conceivably uh, could have gone to AIP had uh, Paramount not bought it. Uh, Madhouse is AIP and Amicus kind of uh, teaming up to give, uh, you know, tribute to Vincent Price. And it's the last film that Vincent Price made with AIP. He plays a a horror film star named Paul Toombs, who has a character, Dr. Death, and uh, you know uh, what happens is his uh, his fiance is murdered. Uh, you know uh, at a party that he has, and he's institutionalized. And then he comes out of it years later, uh, and he's getting back into movies with a return to the character of Doctor Death. But what's happening is that uh, someone dressed as that character, whether it's him or someone else, is murdering all the cast and crew. <laughs> Um, and it's, so it's kind of a, um, a whodunit or a, uh, sort of a proto slasher, but kind of, um, the look of the killer has got a, um, like the fedora and black gloves that you might associate with giallo. And it also has kind of a, like a skull mask that is almost kind of like the German creamy kind of movies, or even kind of predicts the slasher movies of the eighties a little bit. So it's kind of a, um, I guess what you call them is proto slashers, but it's a, uh, you know, it, it is a kind of um, a love letter to Vincent Price. There's lots of clips from other AIP films that, uh, that Vincent Price appeared in. And even um, 
kind of cheeky with the credits. They, um, you know, special appearances by like Boris Karloff and Basil Rathbone, both who had been <laughs> dead for years at that point, and they just are using footage from other AIP films that they're in. Um, it's not a perfect movie. Like, it's definitely like, you know, if you compare it to something like Theater of Blood, it's probably the weaker film. But it's still kind of fun. And, you know, I thought if you're pairing it with something like um, Targets, you know, it's probably less heavy, you know, like a, like a no, more fun, sure. a more fun love letter to another boogeyman of the classic Hollywood, you know, uh, creature features. And uh, yeah, so I thought that that would that would be uh, maybe a less harrowing double feature than some of the other ones I had uh, <laughs> and apparently that you had uh, in mind. <laughs> Yeah, this is one I need to go back to because I don't think I was in the right something. Whatever happened that day probably fucked up my mind, and I wasn't really you know into the movie. So yeah, um, but it seems this was one of the VHS covers I remember always seeing on the shelf at the local mom and pop that I used to go to as a kid. That skull mask, that painting, the face painting is just so memorable. And uh, yeah, this is this is one I need to go back to. Yeah, and it has Peter Cushing, it has Robert Quarry, like it has. I mean, beyond the cameos of Boris Karloff and Basil Rathbone, like it has a lot of you know, you know. And this is 1974, so this is the year of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre and like Daughters of well, Daughters of Darkness is like a little bit earlier, but like, but like, yeah, but like horror is in a different different place altogether than what Vincent Price you know had been doing for AIP, and it wasn't actually that successful. Um, you know, for Vincent Price cultists, it it has its you know it has its fan base, uh, and so I just thought if I pick one film that was like more playing up the connection with snipers, this is more kind of resonates with the Brian Orlock part, Byron Orlock oh. part of it. Totally. I would love, I mean, I, I kind of like the idea of a triple of, uh, I don't know what order, but Targets, Madhouse, and Two Minute Warning would seem like a somewhat of a fun evening. Yeah. Well, I wasn't sure if either of us were going to pick it, but the other film, I mean, and, you know, I mean, you had one of the screenwriters of it on your show. So I was going to say Ed Wood, you know, oh, also, yeah. you know, a uh, a love letter to Lugosi in a way. Yeah. But also just, you know, like Targets is about like that friendship between an old horror star and a, uh, a filmmaker fan, you know, and again, a, another kind of lighter entertainment compared to the, you know, the more harrowing aspects of Targets. But yeah. Totally. I mean, that's one that, you know, I mean, sure, anyone listening to your show probably knows that one well. Um, okay, so for my third one, it's still dark. It's not nearly as depressing as Elephant or Natural Enemies. Uh, this is, and this was one I'd never even heard of it. I don't know if I just Googled, like, shooting, movies about shootings, or I, I don't know how I found it. But anyways, this is from 2007, written and directed by Frank A. Capello, it's called He Was a Quiet Man, mm -hmm. starring Christian Slater and Alicia Cuthbert and William H. Macy's in there a little bit. McConnell. Wow, look at what you did. Yeah. How did it feel? Satisfying. But it's about this unhappy guy uh, who is just, he hates his life. He's miserable at this meaningless job. This is sort of like <laughs> the extremely dark version of Office Space, basically. Mm. Uh, but this guy named Bob, played by Christian Slater, and he brings a loaded gun to work with him every day, and he plans on killing. It's a, you know, it's a six-shooter thing. 
and he plans on killing five of his co-workers and then shooting himself. But every day he kind of chickens out. He goes home and <laughs> he has this pet goldfish that talks to him and like kind of mocks him like, oh, you pussied out again today, didn't you? Anyway, so on another failed attempt at a workplace shooting, this co-worker of Bob's comes in and he commits the crime that Bob had been dreaming about. So this guy's like uh, shooting people left and right in the office and Bob had like accidentally dropped his stapler or something and he bent down to pick it up and hears these gunshots and stays under. Anyways, he stands up and he sees this guy and they're like face to face and the guy's not going to shoot him. But, but Bob's like, what, what are you doing? He said, I just, I, I couldn't take it anymore. I had to, I had to kill people here. And so one of the people that he shot was Alicia Cuthbert. And uh, Bob says, what, why'd you shoot her? And he said, oh, that was an accident. But I'm going to go and finish her off. So Bob shoots him. And th- this is all, at the, this is how the movie starts. Mm-hmm. Bob shoots the killer. He's the hero. He saves this woman. Uh, you know, he saves her life. Well, he goes to the hospital the next day. She's pissed because she's paralyzed now from the neck down and tells Bob, you need to finish the job here. And so they go to the subway station. Again, this is still like only in the first 10, 15 minutes. They go to the subway station. She says, just let me go. Just let me go in front of the train. And so he lets her go, saves her life again. And so this relationship develops. They they kind of form this romantic relationship. The middle of the movie uh, sags a little bit because it's, it's very sweet. Um, I, it's actually very saccharine. Um, it's a little too cheesy for me. But then it gets dark again because the relationship kind of goes on the rocks and and things happen. And it's just really interesting. This is it's a very early 2000s movie. It's got that look. It's got weird (laughs) digital animation in it. But Christian Slater, I mean, I love, you know, he's been an actor that I've watched ever since I was a kid and I've always loved him. And in this movie, he's playing this kind of you know, putts. He's wearing, um, you know, veneers basically for his front two teeth. So he's got these kind of two big buck teeth, almost unrecognizable. So it, you know, it's a really interesting, it's not great, but it's a very interesting movie, lighter than targets, much lighter than the other two movies I talked about. It's, it's an interesting one that I'd never heard about. Yeah. I remember the cover last video store that I worked at. Um, we had the DVD for this one, but I've, I've never seen it. I would have to, uh, give it a shot. What at one point I do like Christians later. I mean, I grew up with his movies also, but, uh, No, I, I haven't seen this one. Well, Bill, thank you so much for joining me. This was a blast. Where can people find you online? Um, well, they I'm on social media. Like I'm on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, you can find uh, my podcast supporting characters at www.nowplayingnetwork.net and at all the usual podcatchers um, where you can hear my episodes with Danny Perry and Heather Drain and Jonathan Hertzberg and Sam Deegan, Emma Westwood, Chris O'Neill, Jammer Ritchie that you've all heard on uh, this show. Um, you're gonna hear. You're gonna hear more uh, of your previous guests this season. Oh, good. <laughs> I'm glad. I also should just plug my um, my first solo commentary is coming out yes. July 27th for the David Green movie, The People Next Door. I know that David Green is enjoying a, um, a bit of a renewed attention for his. Uh, I start counting thanks to our friends at uh, Fun City Editions. 
And, um, you know, this is, you know, it's on Amazon Prime right now, if you're curious to see it. It's a um, suburbia, like, melodrama. Um, teenage girl gets involved in drugs and, uh, you know, problems ensue. I don't want to spoil too much, but it's got Eli Wallach and Julie Harris and Hal Holbrook and Cloris Leachman and, um, you know, a few other faces you'll recognize in the support parts, supporting parts. Um, but, yeah, that that was a lot of work, and that's kind of what I was working on for most of the last few months. And you know, now I'm working on another commentary that I can't say what it is yet, but yeah, that's what I've been working on lately. <laughs> who's who's putting out the people next door? The one that I'm on is Kino Lorber and Scorpion releasing, yeah. and then Indicator is putting out a version with commentary by my friend Lee Gambin with oh. uh, Ratanya Alda, and Ratanya Alda's got like a 30 second cameo in it. You know, either way, uh, hopefully you'll be well served by the. <laughs> The release of your choice, um, yeah. but yeah, I, I I've ordered both of them, so I, oh, I want to hear Lee, but I also want to have the version I'm on. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, that's very exciting, Bill. I'm ha- very happy for you. Thank you. Um, yeah, check out Bill's essay on Jeremy on the Fun City Jeremy disc, uh, which is gosh, just wonderful. I loved loved your essay, Bill. Thank you. Um, and I'm, you know, we're loving everything that uh, is coming out of Fun City Editions. Um, you people can follow this show on Twitter and Instagram at Cult Movies Pod. You can follow me at AK Donnelly on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. That's one N, two L's. Thank you for listening. We're going to be back next week with everybody's favorite podcast guest, Carmelita Valdez, talking The Wild Bunch. Bill Ackerman, thanks again, sir. Thank you for having me. <laughs>